Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Everybody, thanks very much for coming. My name's Margot Saville, and it's my immense privilege to be able to present this uh, session to you on the future of food. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of our land, the Aura people of the Gadigal Nation. And today, we've, uh, that's very pertinent because we're actually going to be speaking about these issues a lot. We've got Damien Coulthard and Rebecca Sullivan here. They have a company called Wandu. Um, they've uh, started a First Nations food business and um, they're going to be speaking a lot about the past and the future of food. Um, we have Ronnie Khan, AO. She's kind of a food terrorist. You all know who Ronnie is. There's no <laughs> point in me describing who she is. Uh, and we have Matthew Evans here, a former food critic uh, and now and food writer, a former journalist, and now runs a farm called Fat Pig Farm down in Tasmania. I blame him for the terrible weather. I think you've brought this Tasmanian oh, weather with you. <laughs> He's got a T-shirt on. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, Damien um, is an Adnamadna man and dairy man from the Flinders Ranges. Um, Damien and Rebecca live in the Flinders Ranges, which has got to be a fabulous part of the country. Um, he's an artist and educator. Rebecca is his partner in business and in life. She's a food educator. Uh, they're regenerative farmers. She's a Yale World Fellow and a TV presenter. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about here. Just have to warn you, we're not going to be talking about Soylent Green. We're actually going to be talking about real food. <laughs> so um, um, Rebecca and Damien, just want to start with you. Your, your business, one do, which means good. It, actually, that's the meaning, means good. And I think that sums up exactly your philosophy. You've been talking to me about how you can use your business and your your lives to look to the past to protect the future of food. So how, how are you going to do that? How are you going to help us all do that? I think it's exactly that, looking to our past to protect the future. And for us, it really started with a, with a loss of an elder and a, and a real expert, um, a cultural expert from the Flinders Ranges in my, in my grandfather, um, a special man who really embraced his, his community. And Wandu, Wandu means good in the other Matna language. And it's good in the way of cultural restoration, the way of sharing stories, but it's good in about inviting everyone into a space where we can kind of learn and tradition transition through different different spaces um, as one. Um, for us, Wandu is about celebrating First Nation resources in the way of plants. And if we really pull that back from a personal level, for us, we have two beautiful, beautiful children, um, Nari and, and Mali, and um, Mali is named after his grandfather. His grandfather was born amongst the Mali trees just at a station called Balkanuna in the Gammon Ranges, so he's always embedded in that country. And his brother's name is, is Nari, and that means the, the night sky. So I guess where I'm going here is that oh, all our food systems are connected to place, land, sea, and waterways, and the night sky. And it's really important that we draw on those knowledge systems from diverse nations. So through Wanda, our aspirations are very much around celebrating the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their voices through food systems. And I think that's really, really important part of this conversation today. Mm -hmm, definitely. Matthew, at the moment, our food systems are broken, aren't they? And it all comes down to it. Matthew's written a very interesting book about soil. Um, so basically, you know, it's not just climate change, is it? I mean, our, our system of growing food is broken. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Did you say a very interesting book about soil? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, Thank as, you. As a journalist, I'm always looking for the dirt. Oh. So. <laughs> oh, was that intended pun, the dirt? Yeah. <laughs> Pay that. Um, uh, yeah, because so many people think of soil as really boring. But it's, so, so, so soil, just to frame it, soil, the difference between humanity existing and not existing, it's a cliche from about the 30s, I think, um, but is, is the fact we have topsoil, the, the dark bit, when you cut into the earth, the dark bit. The difference between us existing and not existing is we have soil and it occasionally rains. That's it, right? But we're losing soil at crazy rates. And most of that is, um, some of it's due, due to other things, the way we mine, the way we, you know, we live, but a lot of it's to do with how we grow food. So we're losing soil at crazy rates. We're losing, to, to frame it for you, the, the, the estimates are that we lose uh, about um, nine kilograms of topsoil for every breakfast, for every lunch, for every dinner, for every human on earth every day, right? You know, so, so that's tomorrow morning when you have your, or 
you know, when you have your lunch after this, think of that, a bucket of topsoil has been washed or blown away buckets. And that's the magic bit that does all the world's growing. And that's, we need, so, so, so we know, we know what we, that we're doing something wrong and we ne now need to work out how to do something right and fix that problem. And so on a kind of personal level, you run a regenerative farm yourself. Just, just, just tell everybody what's the difference between regenerative farming and norm, normal farming. Yeah, so so um, farming humans have grown food for a long time. In the last ten thousand years or so, there's been a thing called we would call it European style farming. So um, it's different than the way Aboriginal people say farmed in Australia. But European style farming, the way it works, it started in the Middle East actually, not in Europe. Um, is humans would show up somewhere if there was trees, they chopped them down and grazed an animal uh, or grew a crop. And if there were no trees, it probably wasn't very good soil. It was probably grass. They just grazed an animal. That's how farming works um, and so farming uh, we, we know we can grow food because we've done it for 10,000 years but can we do it and not bugger up the earth and so I guess re regenerative farming is saying um, well th th there's two there's different levels can we grow food and not go backwards so be sustainable but the current level is not very good. Australia has lost half of its topsoil since white colonization right so so that's on our growing lands half of the magic bit in less than 200 years. We're going to lose the next half on parts of our farmland in the next 40 to 50 years, right? So we're kind of buggering it up. So sustainable would be saying we don't lose any more. But what about the bit we lost? So regenerative is saying we need to repair our land that grows the food for us. And can we grow food and, and, and build topsoil? So on our farm, what we do is we don't use soil to grow plants and animals. We use plants and animals to grow soil. And the beautiful thing is we know experts, if anyone's seen the show, we do Gourmet Farm, we know we're not experts. Um, we, but what we, even as Gumby's new to this, only about 15 years into it, we know that we're using other people's knowledge and, and historic wisdom to, to grow topsoil. It's possible at rates that nature could never grow topsoil. We can repair the damage, but we need lots of farmers to do it, lots of the community be interested in it to, to scale it up and do it at pace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, Ronnie, the topic of this talk is the future of food. You have, or your organisation, OzHarvest, which has been around since 2004, has produced 230 million meals for people in need. You're obviously seeing a, a great increase in the number of people who really need new food. What's the future of, of your organisation? Where, where are you heading? So our challenge for those who understand what 230 million meals, where it comes from, is that this is from rescued food, surplus, perfectly good food that would otherwise go to waste. And our challenge in today's climate is that food waste feeds climate change. So every time we throw food into landfill, it gives off methane gases, it's worse than the aviation sector, it's actually worse than plastic production. So our challenge is, on the one hand, how do we have less Australians that need food? Because in today's Today, there are around 6 million Australians that at some point in the year will need food relief. 3 million who need food relief or some form of, of sustenance with food every day. So that is in this rich and abundant country. So for us, the future of food is how we can educate people to stop wasting food because it's such a valuable resource if it's eating up all our soil and if it's stopping us producing good quality food, then first of all, what we're eating, you know, needs to be protected. But how do we stop wasting food? And then how do we help individuals learn to sustain themselves? So that's kind of the future for us is we have a commitment by 2030 in this country to halve food waste. Mm. Mm. So we need to stop all of us from wasting food, mm. but we also need to upskill all of us and those who in need on how to live a sustainable life. Mm. So those are the focuses for us. Mm. Um, Rebecca and Damien, how, how important is it for you to be able to take First Nations food back to First Nations communities? Like, you know, how, how transformative is it for those communities to be able to eat their own food? I think there's been um, a great loss in 
in identity for for a lot of Aboriginal people in the way of disconnection to the country and place. And this is a real um, vehicle for change and conversation. And it's creating ac accessibility around those native plants, introducing that back in the diet. How do we heal country and heal nations? It's it's very much that collaboration. I draw on experiences from leaders like Bruce Pascoe, where we've had the opportunity to visit his property in, in Malakuta, and he bought that property off the back end of um, his success with Dark Emu. And his vision for that was very much restoring country by bringing back First Nations people to country to relearn their stories and to, to look after the country by planting plants that should be there in the right climate zone. And it's through that and that shared story of being able to harvest, knowing when to harvest, um, and knowing that we're not ruining the root systems that then communicate to each other, that then allow the insects, the native bees and the rest of the native you know animals to come back to the country, we start to heal that, that space. So how, how important is food for First Nations people? It's, it's very important. Um, you know, it's well, it's well documented that our people um, have disadvantaged in many health-related issues, but it's something that we can change and it's something that we know, but it has to be a collective, everyone sitting today having that voice. And, um, you know, if you do taste the native ingredient, acknowledging and recognising where that plant is from by using the place name, sharing the story about that, and then sharing it with a friend. And that's how I feel that we can really change um, the story for everyone here today. And to, to add to that, our book, First Nations Food Companion, we've seen obviously an amazing um, amount of non-Indigenous people take the book and use it daily, but I guess so much joy has come from, as an example, yesterday I was on Wiradjuri Country and I met up with, with a group of elders who used the book in their book club and 10 of those elders now cook regularly with native ingredients that they were disconnected from for, for various reasons, which is a whole other conversation. But knowing that those foods are going back into Indigenous people's diets is so important. Like it's a number one priority for us with our work is ensuring that First Nations people have access to their own food, um, which sadly doesn't happen as much as, you, as much as you would think or we would like to happen. And it's not just for lifestyle diseases perspective because there's a lot of research out there and not just from First Nations um, cultures in Australia but all over the world that have the same the same issues where traditional foods are taken out of diets and lifestyle diseases become prevalent. You can go to, um, you know, look at Native American culture, Native Canadian culture, um, all over the place and you'll see exactly the same issues, the same statistics. And so for us, ensuring that access to uh, First Nations foods is as accessible to First Nations people as it is to non-Indigenous non people so we can have that co-culture and that celebration. And, and for me, if... For someone who's worked in the local food movement and championed it my entire career, if we really want to eat truly local food, then we have to eat the food of our own back garden. And if we're prepared to pay $25 for a bag of goji berries from South America, from a health perspective, why are we not paying $25 for a bag of Davidson Plum, which has higher antioxidants, has travelled less food miles and connects us to that beautiful, rich culture um, of, of that place, of those peoples who have been eating and harvesting those, those foods for health. I mean, these are superfoods. There's 6,500 of them in our back garden. People, we need to embrace the superfoods from our, from our country to repair our own health and, and repair reconciliation with, with our First Nations people. That, that's a true revolution, isn't it? Yeah. You know, taking that, taking that back to the community, and then taking it to the wider community as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Matthew, how hard is it to fight big food? I mean, you've you've got a farm, you've got animals, you've got plants. How hard is it for you to be able to get out of the system and do something your way? Um, it not too hard. But before we do that, can I just really ask a really quick question of these mm. guys? Because I was really interested in what you're saying. I like numbers, but in terms of um, uh, uh, how much. Um, of of, a, of a, the diet of of someone you know in the Clare Valley or mm -hmm. um, you know in the Flinders Ranges, do you think could come from ingredients that w have grown there forever? And how much do you think would be from the things that we've imported, like you know potatoes or mm -hmm. carrots or or cabbage? That's a, or that's a really interesting question, and maybe someone could support some research in that. <laughs> yeah, um, so because I would actually love to know an exact figure because that would be great. But look, I'm, we're not telling people to go and empty your fridges and empty your cupboards and only live off a, off a native food diet because 
for one, let's go to the fact that these foods are medicine and medicine is food in First Nations people's culture and other cultures all around the world. But in Australia, we don't sort of see food as medicine. So you're looking at flavour profiles that the average Australian person is not used to, bitter, astringent, sour. There is no sweetness like we are used to sweetness. So everyone would, for one, all of a sudden go, oh, okay, um, where do I go here? So we're not telling people to, to do that, but we're telling people what happens when we start eating. Like, let's take sauerkraut as an example, right? If you are not used to sauerkraut, the first time you try wild fermented sauerkraut, you're going to go like this, right? But it only takes your body two weeks to establish a habit. And if you've been eating sauerkraut every day for two weeks, you will crave it. Your body will crave that acid. Um, the same thing happens with native food profiles, bitter, astringency, sourness, um, all of those things. And, and there are lots of cultures like Asian culture as an example where they eat a Davidson plum, a Japanese person will eat a Davidson plum and go, oh my God, that's exactly like our sour plum. So there's all these substitutions. So what our book really is about is trying to encourage people to sub start substituting out something traditional or something that they would have in their cu cupboard or their garden or a protein as an example with a native food and eventually it just becomes the norm. We want everyone's spice cabinet to include lemon myrtle and wattle seed and cinnamon myrtle and anise myrtle. Everything you have in your spice cupboard has a direct substitute for a native spice. And the reason I keep saying spices is because it's a very easy place for people to start to learn about these ingredients, about their benefits, about their flavour profile. And I think it's pretty safe to say anyone, when they learn how to cook, they learn with spices, right? That's how you start to learn how to, to bring flavour into things. Um, so I didn't answer your question with a statistic and I was avoiding it because I don't have one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so part of it, has anyone seen Alone Australia? Is there anyone... Mm. Yeah. yeah, so so I live in Tasmania, mm -hmm. and and so I was really interested in that because our local Aboriginal people, when we we got them to get, uh, you know the elders and some students to come and plant a garden of of indigenous um, plants that we could harvest, but I was amazed at how little those people could find that wasn't an animal product to eat, and so I'm sort of interested in how much because obviously things that are well adapted to our climate would be ideal. Uh, to answer your question, Margaret, um, so, so taking on big food or, or, you know, what can we do? Um, so what, it's quite, it's relatively easy. We do, we just bought a, 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 a piece of land, which is not everyone, you know, it's a very privileged position, but, but, but as a farmer, we had 70 acres under our control. And what we did is say, well, what can we grow here and how much food can we produce? And, um, and I do get to these talks sometimes in, in, and people say, you're not a real farmer because, you know, you don't produce, you know, you're only on 70 acres and in Australian terms, that's tiny. But the, the, the reality, is that small farmers are actually feeding the world at the moment. 70% of the, of the world's food comes from farms of five acres or less. You know, it's so way smaller than our place. So, so change, um, uh, your farms are getting bigger in Australia at the moment, but, but um, change can come from below and from people taking, on, taking responsibility for small areas and saying, well, how, how, what, what will work here? What grows here? What, what used to grow here? What can we also grow here? And can we, can we, you know, how much of that can we produce while not ruining the piece of land that we are gifted, you know, the pri privilege of being, you know, custodians of for whatever period of time we're on earth, um, and and um, and produce nutrient dense food for the for the people around us. Um, there is there are, in Australia we obviously have the two big um, supermarkets, the fresh food people, which I I don't. Misnomer. Misnomer, yes, completely. It's like, it's like what? Oh, I went in there the other day. It's like, what? And the other one. Um, uh, and, and they dominate the market. And so they control what people have access to. And, and, um, and so, the, so, so, so we can do it on our, on our little space. But I think the problem for, for the future is that they create food deserts because their vested interest is sending your local greengrocer, your local bottle shop, your local butcher broke. Um, so and then con concentrating that. So you, if you imagine you've got four kids, you know, no car, it's two buses to get to the only place that sells, you know, a carrot, the fresh food people, and it's not that fresh. Um, uh, you're not going to do that very often, are you? It's these food deserts that we have created. So so culturally, um, there are lots of challenges, I guess, for how how you how into the future we actually feed the people who need it most, who need the most access to fresh fruit and vegetables, because the the underprivileged in, in Tassie, it's 50% of the population. Are food insecure every uh, one, you know part of the year, um, so it's 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 one in five every week is food insecure. So they at least once a, uh, a week they don't know where a meal is coming from. Three hundred and six thousand families a day. Yeah, wow. 
Yeah, it's a crazy number. So, so how do we deal with that with, when we're throwing out 40% of the food we buy? And we're probably throwing, as a farmer, around me, because we're orchardists and stuff, they throw out 50% of the food they grow. That's before it gets measured as food waste. You know, so how do we d- take all of those things, fix those problems? That's why I'm so excited that you're on a panel with Ronnie. <laughs> well, I don't have a solution. I'm just trying to make sure that we rescue whatever but you're isn't doing so being much. used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's true. It's just insane to think that a third of all food produced goes to waste when we know what the need is. And it's really how we've lost the value of food. And I think that's very clear is that, yeah, we're willing to buy produce that, you know, might not have the nutritional value. So we've lost the value we need to re-inculcate. I mean, we have, we have an education program that goes into schools and I've been in it and I've heard kids say that a potato comes from a shelf in the supermarket, you know? So we've, we've lost even teaching how food is grown so there's the system is severely broken. Um, and Ronnie, you were telling me before that um, demand for your services has gone up 50%. And yeah. that, um, Ronnie was saying to me that before it was people without a job who were the main um, people in need for Oz Harvest food and it's now people with a job. So it's the working poor who can't afford food because they're paying off the rent or the mortgage. Um, so it's not just the future of food or the food system that's broken. I mean... You know, I'm not getting into politics, but our wage, our wages don't cover the needs. The biggest challenge for people is housing, as in rental, and the cost of living. During COVID, it was the pandemic. During the pandemic and pre was nat- natural disasters. Food, food relief, food rescue, food services have a very long tail. So during COVID, when you got supplemented, you know, there was job seeker and job keeper. The minute that stopped, the challenges don't stop. And it's true. We're seeing 76% of our charities are telling us that they need 50% more food. And a third of those are this new demographic, people who are either single family, single women, or and people who have a job one job in a family, but they can't make ends meet. And that's before we even start talking about climate refugees, which, yeah, is, and which is happening in our own country as we speak, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, in areas like Lismore or any of the flood-affected areas, there are still people, and from the fires, there are still people who don't have homes, there are still people living in, in you know, severe conditions. So there's something fundamentally skewed in a country as wealthy and as abundant as ours. So we can talk about the challenges, but I'm not sure how we can solve them. I mean, we're doing our best. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And I, you're doing an amazing job, Ronnie. Absolutely. At 230 million meals. I mean, that's a phenomenal Well, it's probably, that was last week. It might be 235. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Data is very important and it really is about actually measuring everything and understanding and that goes for all of us. Yes, yes. Uh, Rebecca and Damien, um, how, how, how do you think our government is doing enough um, in your space? Do you think that... Um, it, Ooh, where, the where, politics questions. <laughs> where, where, is, uh, where is the help going to come from? Is it from us, the consumer, or is it from, say, I mean, you know, larger food companies like the dreaded Coles and Woolworths buying your products, you know, or is it government? Is it a push from government? How are we going to achieve the aims of um, helping your business to help your communities achieve a kind of, find their cultural heritage? Yeah, I think our business is very much about yeah, healing our country as Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people walking together. I really believe in people here, you, all of you guys here really make the change and it's through your voices and it's through your actions and it's through your circle of influence, through your actions that you are going to be able to make change. Um, I'm lucky enough to, to be a school teacher and I've worked in education for the last 15 years, working with Aboriginal students and non-Aboriginal students. I now work with um, in Catholic Ed, but seeing the level of interest through experiences, but it's through those students having accessible access to leaders across many different industries that is changing their way of thinking. If that can grow and develop as they transition into a career, I think that's where that change is really going to happen. I don't think we can wait for, for our government to, to be leaders in, in this space, if I'm really upfront and honest, because 
changes needed to happen probably 20, 30 years ago, and it's seriously, seriously impacting um, our country, Australia, and it's seriously impacting First Nations people and decisions that are being made. We've got a real opportunity um, through the native food industry to make those changes, and that's through acknowledgement and recognition um, of First Nations stories and plants and voice, but it is a collaboration. It's about wild harvesters, commercial growers um, growing together in the industry. Um, we're far from experts and we don't pretend to be experts, um, but what we do is, is collaborate. And I think that's what everyone needs to do is galvanise as a community, um, collaborate and um, you know, walk in the same direction. Mm. Rebecca, you were saying you organise events and you gather people around the table. And what 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 magic happens when you gather people around the table eating together? I, it's so much magic because for us, what happens in the circumstances where we bring native food to the table, for a lot of people, um, both Indigenous and not, um, is we create a safe place for people. Because as an example, for, for, for me, um, you know, having worked in the local food movement my entire career and then realising that I knew nothing about our local food, I felt like a big hypocrite, you know, when I met Damien and I didn't even know what lemon myrtle was or, you know, what wattle seed was and I always say that I had kangaroo once when my French friends forced it upon me, <laughs> um, you know, and so f for me, um, you know, that, that importance of, of, um, of both truly local food and, and embracing it. But, um, but I, you know, started seeing Damien, you know, 10 years ago, didn't know anything about Aboriginal culture. It took me six months to ask his parents about their culture because I, like a lot of Australians, there's a bit of an elephant in the room if you don't grow up having any um, Aboriginal studies at school, which sadly we do not have enough of, um, and you don't know anything, you just slip into awkwardness and embarrassment and almost like feeling a bit ashamed because I didn't know anything and I didn't know how to broach it because I didn't want to say the wrong thing. But then what happened was this magic happened, was I asked Damien's dad about food first and then it was almost like he all of a sudden felt comfortable with me as well because we just started sharing our love for food and he started telling me stories of country and him growing up picking quandongs and blah, blah, blah. And then before I knew it, every time he'd come down from the Flinders Ranges to visit us, he'd bring us something he'd found on the side of the road or something. And it almost like connected him back to, to food because there was this, you know, passion for it. But when we do pop-up restaurants, we create this really, everyone's equal when they eat. And you probably see that happen every time in your, through your restaurant, right? When we all sit at a table together, we're equal. There is no difference between us. And it just creates this place where people can start. They start with a native ingredient, then they learn what it is in language or where it came from. And then we start speaking about that particular nation or what it might have been used for. And then boom, before you know it, everyone's speaking about Aboriginal culture. And that... that unknown it has been breached and there's a safe place. And you could probably talk about it oh, look, from your restaurant is, perspective. Totally. Food is love, food is dignity, food is respect, and there's nothing like breaking bread yeah. to break down barriers. Or breaking and damper in our instance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, in ours it's homemade whatever, yeah. what, whatever ingredients we have managed to rescue. But I think the answer to your question, Margot, really is every single one of us. We are in government. Yeah. We are in business. We are on the streets. It is incumbent on every single one of us to be an activist in some way for some particular cause, but particularly to protect our country, to protect our planet. Um, I think, yeah, I, 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 at the end, I will share a quote that's in the afterword of my book because it empowers all of us. Yeah, I was going to ask you to read that, actually. Thank you, Ronnie. No worries. Um, so everybody here on the panel has children. Um, Matthew, how important is it for you to leave a legacy for your son? Um, that's an interesting one. Um, uh, I don't think it should matter that I'm a parent. Um, I think if you can't imagine what it's like to, to leave the earth for the next generation, even if you're not a parent, I think is... Um, you know, it's just sometimes that the, the people, it does reframe, I guess, how you see the world, but I don't think it's necessary. Um, and, um, but, but as a, uh, my son's 13, um, he told me 
the other day that he thinks that the world's going to go to shit by um, 2030. <laughs> so he hasn't got much time left. It's less than 3,000 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that's to do with um, biodiversity loss, climate change, um, the fact that we just closed our little restaurants and he doesn't know what that means. It probably means a lot more helicopter parenting. Um, <laughs> so his life's going to go terribly wrong. That's what he means by he's going to shit, Matthew. So in fact, his world is going um, to shit, actually. Yeah. His, his world is going to shit until he can drive. So that's four years away. Um, uh, um, no, but I, but I think um, so. When we work our land, like when we, we so it's the Malakadi people. They're the Huon River people. The Huon River is just down the road from us. The Malakadi people have been there for forty-two thousand years by current estimates. So essentially forever, two thousand generations. Everyone, you think about it, um, and and um, and and so we always try to work that land. And I, my brain can't do forty thousand years into the future. It doesn't work that way. And I can only I can't do four thousand years. But I try to work four hundred years into the future and go, okay, so what? what do we leave behind? And we are only, all of you are, are, can only be responsible for what you are responsible for and us as well. But we, we, are, we, we are lucky enough to, to have this piece of land under our management at the moment. How do we make it better? And that drives us every single day. So when I look around, and this is the interesting thing, because I know a lot of people are into rewilding or taking, you know, uh, uh, taking people out of landscapes, but, but our landscape has had humans there for 50 it's going to be 50,000 years once they you know, find the evidence. So it's 40,000 years, whatever you want to call it. It's had humans there for forever. That landscape has to have humans on it. When you read the old diaries from um, Robinson, whatever his name was, who, who, who was going up the West Coast, could see 100 shelters on the West Coast of Tasmania. If anyone's been there, it's crazy weather, like to see 100 different shelters, you know, there. But no people, because the people probably all died of smallpox or ran away from him because he was doing, you know, essentially not being nice most of the time. Um, but he had a couple of Aboriginal um, uh, guides and they would keep picking up sticks and burning a bit and moving things. And, and he's like, well, come on, we got, you know, we've got to get on with it. We've got places to be. And they're like, no, no, but this is not maintained. This is, you know, it's like being in someone's lounge room and there's Lego, right? It's like, you know, yeah. well, you've got to move that out of the way, you know. <laughs> They were, they were managing landscapes. And this idea that we have to take humans off landscapes to improve them, like there's no, apart from Antarctica, there's no landscape on Earth that hasn't had humans on for thousands of years. There's no wilderness. That's a white colonialist-like attitude. And so what is the, what should we do? Well, we need to have people on landscapes who care for those landscapes. And not every human will and not every you know, man, you know, uh, person does. Um, and so our role is, really sorry, long answer to your very short question. Um, um, uh, our role is to not bugger it up and possibly even improve what we were gifted when we arrived. And, um, and we've been lucky enough to see that happen um, in our time, but hopefully we can keep that happening until we cark it. Um, I, I mean, your son raises an interesting point. There, you know, there's a, a, a big movement at the moment to say that climate change is inevitable, there's kind of catastrophizing, and that we're all going to end up like Elon Musk and jump on a rocket and go to Mars and leave the Earth behind. You know, how, how do we counteract that kind of... Um, negative philosophy and persuade people that the world is actually worth saving and that we can save it? Oh, I, for, for me, like my master's is in climate change and I did that um, in, in 2010. So I've been sort of banging on about it for, for a long time. But for me, I've realised that, you know, I started off being preachy and a hardcore activist and getting thrown in jail and all that sort of stuff and realised very quickly that actually just by being passionate and showing people small ways in which they can make big change in their own home works much better. And we'd rather just millions of people doing small things and not trying to be perfect it is a much more, a, a much better way. You know, the minute you take away hope from people, chaos reigns. You only have to look at any any civil war or anything that's going on in all over the world to, to realise that we can't take hope away from people. And, um, you know, we're past mitigation. We're at the point of, well, we can still mitigate, but adaption is key. And this is why for us, getting more native plants into the land is not only for soil health, um, you know, lots of these plants are nitrogen fixing, they're fodder for animals and we need livestock in the system, especially from a region ag perspective, but these plants are climate resilient. So uh, for us, the big part of the work that we're doing is around climate resilient communities, creating climate resilient communities through creating native food bowls, food that belongs in the soil and in people's diets. Um, so, so for me, I and a lot of um, my other work and, and writings is, is around 
natural home and, and conscious living. So I've been writing about sustainable living for, for over a decade and, and it's all about small things, small actions, small changes because small changes become habit. You know, we never used to take keep cups. How many, pe- pers- how many people in this audience have a keep cup and a water bottle now, right? All of you, <laughs> yeah. right? So you, le- you used to leave the house with your phone and your keys um, and your wallet, and then we ditched the wallets because the cards became in the phone, and and then we started with the water bottles, and now we take the keep cups and the spare bag, you know. It, and Costa, who's a from Gardening Australia, who's a great mate of ours, you know, he constantly talks about takes two weeks to form a habit. If we for two weeks, you know, take our water bottle, take our keep cup, all of a sudden, you know, Matthew's got his right there. It, it becomes a habit, and that's all we have to do with all the other things. Start with the small things, the things that are feasible. Don't try and be a perfect human because none of us are. But if we start with the small things, go home, you know, this, go, this, this weekend and grab a native plant and plant it in your garden and share some of the leaves that you use in cooking with your neighbour. You know, they're all small things that we can do um, that will. We've, um, we've created something that every single Australian, but anyone around the world, and it is getting around the world, that can support everyone becoming a climate activist. And I cannot believe I did not bring it with me. I normally do not walk anywhere without it. Do but you I have your share. water bottle and keep cup though, right? Yeah, I have my water <laughs> cup, but I didn't bring our special, special magic. So let me share with you, if I can, very briefly. So we've done research. Again, it's around the fact that none of us really realised that food waste was the second, the third biggest reason for climate change. And if food waste was a country it would be the third biggest emitter of gas after the US and China. So on, on that basis, we did research with Monash University and behavioral scientists on how we can shift and change our behavior, because that's the biggest challenge. We don't have billions of dollars to run campaigns to get you to buy hamburgers or whatever, but we need to, to do that. And based on a huge demographic and work we did with a, a matrix of likelihood behaviours, the most likely behaviour that we're all willing to do is to use up our leftovers. And so if we could teach and remind people to lo- use up their leftovers, that would be a very good thing. So we've created, and like I say, please go onto our website, it's free, but I didn't bring the example. It's called Use It Up Tape. And it sounds so funny. For me, I think it's a little bit about gamifying, not wasting food. But it's about a nudge, a visual and and real nudge. So we've created a tape, and of course it's yellow and black. And it says, use me, eat me, pick me, cook me. And you, the tape is biodiverse, you know, it's all the right things. And you stick it on a shelf in your fridge, and it's to remind you to move the things that are half used or half open, the yogurt, the leftover piece of chicken, a little bit of one piece of broccoli, whatever, to put on that shelf and to use it up. And the research, based on 45,000 families that have now used it, is that they have halved their food waste, their fruit and veg by 40%, their dairy and um, meat by 50%. It's saving the average family around $2,500 a year. So this is a perfect um, timing with the cost of living. And that way, every single one of us can become an activist, an eco-warrior by just doing that. And kids love it. Families are now engaged in their planning, in their food buying. So please go online um, and order some use it up tape because I didn't think of, I don't know how. So, I didn't well, does it work on teenagers who open the fridge and say there's nothing to eat? <laughs> no, but it does. It absolutely does because first of all, they tear off a little bit and stick it on the open box of cereal or on the yogurt or on the Tupperware. And there's an engagement, a whole new conversation around why not to waste food, both the money and the planet and the families that have got young teenagers are finding that it's the most effective. And it also gives another conversation to be had around food and purchasing and planning and shopping and making a list. So it's an interesting one. It might be me. Um, It might take me two weeks of using it. It looks to be like crime scene tape. (laughs) I will share with you that I walked into my my 
kids home and my grandchild had mapped out a basketball court with use it up tape, <laughs> just sharing. So it's very useful. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things that... Um, uh, that, that I do sometimes in talks is I talk about my, when I grew up and my family would always save everything for best. So, you know, you, you'd take a cheese and you'd cut a little wedge out, you'd have a beautiful piece of cheese and then you'd put it back in the fridge in case the Queen Mum came or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the things I learned as an adult was that a fridge is not a hospital. <laughs> like, nothing gets better in there. <laughs> Except That's a curry. Wonderful. A curry gets better in there for three days only, but then put the crime scene tape on it. But otherwise... Everything in there, you're supposed to eat all the time. The longer it spends in there, the worse it gets. You know, like this, this, so yes. So what a combination. Tape. Use it up tape and the, the fridge is not a hospital. Yeah, yeah. Best yeah. line ever. That is fantastic. Um, so we've got a few more minutes to go. And Ronnie, I just, you said you wanted to read from your afterwards. Oh, I wasn't going to read the whole book. I'll just do the quote. Yeah, all right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Story time, I mean, I'll just read much. the whole book. No, I w- I'll tell you the quote that's in the afterward because I couldn't be, it would be too embarrassing to read it. But the quote goes like this, and it's based, it's a quote that I heard from an Israeli author by the name of Amos Oz, who has sadly passed and was the moral compass of the Middle East. But the quote goes something like this. In the event of a huge conflagration, we as humans, a conflagration being, ex- for an example, a huge fire, We, as human beings, have three principal ways that we could behave. The first one is to look at that fire and run away as fast as we can and leave those that cannot run to burn. It's an option. Number two, write an angry letter to the newspaper demanding that the perpetrators get punished. Or number three, you can run and find a bucket. And if you cannot find a bucket, find a jug. And if you cannot find a jug, find a teaspoon because every single one of us has a teaspoon. And so I want to create the order of the teaspoon, where each and every one of us wears a teaspoon to remind us every single day of our role of doing good, of taking action, of doing something to support being part of the order of the teaspoon. So I wear a teaspoon every day, this is my rings, a teaspoon. I wear one on my, around my neck. And so I would like all of you to put your hands together like this, everyone. Please look down into your hands because in your hand is your metaphorical teaspoon. Can you take it? Can you put it to your heart? And can you commit to using your teaspoon every single day, whether it's to fight the future of food, to protect, to make sure that your fridge is not a hospital. (laughs) But use your teaspoon every single day. And I do have one pre-loved, where's it from? I can't even read. A pre-loved teaspoon here. Is there anyone who would like a real that lady pre-loved teaspoon? Very quickly. If you put your hand up, be brave and courageous, come and get it, because that's the only way you're going to get it. Definitely you, ma'am. You put your hand up so quickly. I think that's a wonderful place to end our discussion. I haven't asked the most controversial question, of course, is should we stop eating meat? But uh, if I I did ask the panel that, I think we'd be here for another two hours, wouldn't we? Yeah. (laughs) But I need Um, your name, because I'm going to check up on you, uh, that you've used your (laughs) teaspoon. (laughs) Is there anybody who'd like to ask a question? Uh, yes, lady, just lady here. Hi, this is a question for Damien, I think. I'm just curious uh, what approaches you think there might be to get um, more non-Indigenous farmers um, on board with um, growing native foods, what's going on in that space, because there so, seems to be like so much untapped potential. Yeah, I think it's this comes back to relationship building, I think, between non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people, whether you're wild harvesters or commercial growers, it's drawing on both knowledge systems, First Nation knowledge systems and innovation, and maybe in the Western sense, but it's very much around um, relationship building. I know in in Adelaide at the moment, um, with First Nations quality foods, that's a joint collaboration, um, but that's very much just based on, on relationships and experiences. And if I kind of draw it back to, if we're thinking about land management practices and, and cool burling, we got the experience... Um, 
an opportunity with the Nukunu community, and that was very much Nukunu organising it with Victor Stephenson. If you haven't heard of Victor Stephenson, look him up, Fire Stick Farming. And so it's about inviting everyone in that closed loop, the CFS um, growers and wild harvesters, and then really focusing on a particular form of culture expression. And it's about developing that community in a holistic sense and then bring together and focus on areas. So I don't think there's... Um, a succinct answer, sorry, I didn't answer that probably correctly, but I think it's about relationship. If you are passionate about something, don't be scared. Make sure you're well planned. Meet the right people. Ask questions. Don't be afraid grow. to reach out. We're, we're trying to run this climate resilient program at the moment, so our big goal is to get... So we live in the Clare Valley, so we're surrounded by sorry, monoculture, but it is, it's fine, sheep or wheat. And what we're trying to do is get local farmers to plant wattle seed as an example, um, integrate it in with their crops because not only is it nitrogen fixing, it's also fodder for their animals, but then we would buy the wattle seed from them as our, through our business and sell it to humans for protein. And so... Um, but but that comes from, you know, just reaching out. And But then the other day we had a woman who has 100 acres on Kangaroo Island and all wattle seed trees and she reached out to us and said, I want to be able to, um, to farm this commercially but I want to be able to give it back. So what we're doing is we're doing an annual wattle seed harvest where we're inviting um, – Indigenous um, participants come, but but to do the harvest and take take the seed, and we're having a harvest party and all of that sort of stuff. But it comes from courage from both sides. People going right, how can we work together? And actually reaching out to people, like we we are desperate for more um, Indigenous farmers in the industry. Um, we're but we're also um, keen for non-Indigenous farmers in the industry. And we've worked in the industry for a long time now. So I think it's just a matter of reaching out, reaching out to the appropriate um, people in your community. And um, if you have got land um, or even a quarter acre, you can grow these foods at home and p participate in the industry Can't we and the grow culture. Some on our balconies yeah, and, and on your balconies. In your I mean, you can be part of it. We we lived in Bowden in an apartment and we grew. 17 different things on our balcony, um, three of which of them came to the farm with us. We've got a Geraldton wax um, tree in a pot that we use, you know, daily in cups of tea and in cooking and in broths and all sorts of things. So it doesn't matter where you live, you can participate in the system uh, and in the native food industry. But I think um, just off the back end of last year, I was part of a, an epic CRC and it was very much about increasing economic capacities within the native food industry. And it was for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal businesses and communities. And it was working with a community called Bidjidanga. Um, and they paired up with um, a fruit farmer who were growing watermelons to grow, um, what was it? Yeah, Kakadu Plum. Mm -hmm. And it was about providing access to work so then community members can stay on the community, but then also an economic stream in the way of working, but then reconnecting the country and story through the food. So it was a joint collaboration. So how can we both, how can we both prosper together? It's happening. It's happening. And, and if you need more information, we can pass yep. that on come, to you. Come and see Rebecca and Damien mm -hmm. afterwards. Uh, yes, another question over here. Hi, uh, I guess this is for Ronnie. So I guess with supermarkets, and we've talked about them a bit today, of course, the price at the supermarkets is often the best and with cost of living pressures for a lot of people. So what, what would we say to the people that feel like they're forced almost to, to shop at these places because of convenience or price? Look, it is a challenge. Um, the bigger they get, obviously, the more competitive the pricing is going to be. I don't really have a solution, but there are farmers markets. There are, you know, in Sydney, we run a free market in Waterloo. Um, I always say to Brad Banducci, our little market will not really compete with yours. We get 2,000 people a week. You get 7 million a day. Um, so give us your produce. Um, it, look, it is a challenge, and I think we just have to be mindful. We're always going to go where the, you know, there's certainly a certain demographic that will always go where the price is competitive. And it's part of our Western consumer culture that we want everything available 24-7 until such time as we stop going to a supermarket and buying cherries out of season or buying things that aren't, aren't bagged, the supermarkets will continue to bag them. They actually serve us and we have power 
and we can walk with our feet. But the truth is, the more the supermarkets grow, the less competition there is. Yeah. And so I think don't it... ever feel guilty about going to the supermarket because that's what normal people have to do all the time. Um, and and because we're all we're all bound by our economic, geographic, you know, whatever cultural things. Um, and uh, but don't look at that. Every time you can you have a, a, can make a better choice. So if you can go and buy something out just across the road here at you know, the grower who's at the, the carriage work markets today, or go to a farmers market, or, or buy off a roadside stall, or grow something yourself, even better. That's when you change the world. So don't feel guilty about the stuff you can't change. The supermarkets already exist. The bad system already exists. Every time you have the opportunity, find financial, geographic, whatever, to to make a better decision, that's the moment that you are going to change the system and change the world. Yeah, beautiful. And, and the, you truth is, walk, and you? the truth is, I happen to know that actually those supermarkets do listen. So write to them, bombard them. They read every letter. I mean, I, I don't know that that's going to change their pricing system, but it might change packaging. It might. I mean, it, it, it is... It does make a difference. Yep, great. Thank you. There was a gentleman. Yes, here. just a quick question. Seeing you all work in complementary areas to sustain the planet, save the planet, save humanity, where's government and government funding in all of this? Yeah, good question. Well, I can answer that just out of the latest budget. We had put in a submission and a collaborative submission between a couple of food rescue and food relief organisations. We'd asked for a significant amount of money because we get nothing right now and we got nothing. So the answer is up to shit. <laughs> yes, in a farming sense, uh, we get a lot of support. There's a lot of work being done in a council sense about food security um, and a little bit done in, on the state level. But generally, everything. there's no food security plan for Australia. There's no... Uh, so Tasmania, for example, exports five and a half times more food than it, you know, than it consumes, um, and yet half the population are food insecure. So, so they, all they care about is uh, um, big business selling offshore and making an income and out of that, but the actual structural change to change the, the system is only happening at the local level, not at the federal or state, very much. Yeah. And our food is not considered even... I think we've only got about 10 of these ingredients that are technically legal. So we don't sit in the commodity area yet. So we don't even get looked at really. So I, I think there's more money in growing in the illegal agriculture space. Of isn't there? Yeah, better profit we work in loopholes. Exactly. Exactly. Very good point. Um, I'm really sorry. We're out of time and uh, we've got to clear the hall for the next um, episode. I just want to say you've been a great audience. Great questions. Thank you. Could you please thank our panel? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.